Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Very early in the morning, according to Luke and Mark 15, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? How many things that they have accused you of? But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas. He had then had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Thank you, Pete. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here in church together as we do celebrate the Easter period. Um, Can I ask a question this morning? The question is this. uh, How many people have been to Sydney? Now, keep your hand up if you know that the Sydney Road Network really sucks. A couple of people put their hand out. Most people kept their hand up. It's uh, a bit of a nightmare of a city to drive around. Um, In fact, recently, in a recent report, Sydney's roads were rated even worse and slower than New York's. 
Uh, I call it the world's worst one-way city because there are a bunch of one-way roads in the city and they're just really confusing. I've got to say that, that my geography is really poor at the very best of times and so when you throw in a whole lot of one-way streets, I find myself getting really confused. And a couple of years ago or a few years ago now, I was in Sydney for a conference and we'd rented a car and I was trying to make my way through this uh, nightmare of a network and I was driving through there and I found myself going down a one-way road. Now I only knew it was a one-way road because I was going down it and ahead of me I saw a pile of cars sitting at a red light and the red light all of a sudden went green. And I'm coming towards them fairly quickly and I couldn't reverse all the way back on this one-way street and so I started to freak out a little bit. And so I I wondered, what am I going to do here? And ahead of me, I saw a car park on my right. And I thought, if I floor it, I can probably get in that car park before they get to me. And so it was a little bit like a game of chicken, Uh, a bit of a Mexican standoff. I know Sydney siders call us Mexicans because we're south of the border. This is before Trump built the wall. And uh, and so I was driving down and I took up the challenge. I thought, well, I can be the Mexican in this situation. And so I bit on my burrito and shoved down some nachos and I hit the accelerator heading for this car park on the right thinking I can make it. And because of my exceptional driving skills, um, I did make it. And I made it just in time, about 10 metres before they got to me. Now, as I approached them, they were flashing their lights and I thought they were complimenting me on my driving skills. (laughs) But as I got closer and I read their lips, I realised that what they were saying is not that complimentary and I probably wouldn't repeat it in church this morning. Not only that, but they were waving with their hands. I thought they were cheering me on, but I realised they were using their middle finger too much for that to be the case. (laughs) And so this was Sydney Sider's way of saying, welcome to our city. And I thought in that moment, now I can see why Melbourne is voted the most livable city every year and Sydney barely makes the list, right? Very, very unwelcoming. But I must say I should take some responsibility. I was going down a one-way road pretty quickly and it's not really my fault, it's a road network that made me do it. But I was going down a one-way street, hence the reason they were upset with me. One-way streets, if you don't know, like I didn't seem to know back then, are designed to be driven down in one direction. A moment ago, we sang that song, that classic song, the Hillsong song. And a few years ago, when I was a young person, actually quite a few years ago, I used to listen to that on loop on my Disman. Now, a lot of the young people are going, what's a Disman? Google it when you get home. It's like a prehistoric iPod. And we used to use these things called compact discs that we would put inside and we'd press a button and some music would come out. And so I used to listen to One Way over and over again. One Way, Jesus you're the only, I shouldn't sing, should I? You're the only one that I could live for. One way. Okay, fine. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. Thanks for bailing me out there, mate, when no one else did. All my friends abandoned me, but you were there. But I used to listen to that song, and I wanted us to sing it today because it's an appropriate song, because our current teaching series leading up to Easter is all about Jesus, but it's always, it's also called One Way. And what we read about in this phenomenal Easter story is the one-way mission of Jesus Christ. It's the most incredible mission the world has ever seen, whereby God the Father gave God the Son a mission, and he had a one-way determination and focus to see that mission fulfilled no matter what it costs. It's an incredible mission. And so Easter, in all of its sadness, and last week Ray preached a brilliant message about some of the sadness of what happened to Jesus, and on Good Friday we'll hone in on that a little bit more. But Easter, in all of its sadness... In all of its defeat and in all of its ultimate victory, it shows us that Jesus embraced his mission 
And when he embraced his mission, there was no turning back. At this point of the Easter story in Mark chapter 15, Jesus is drawing to the completion of his earthly ministry to die in our place. And at this point, he'd already endured so much. He'd been hounded by the religious leaders. He'd been falsely accused by many people. He'd been betrayed by his closest friends. This point of the story, every single one of them had abandoned him, left him in his time of need. He was now arrested and he was weak and he was in so much emotional and spiritual anguish that as we heard last week, he was sweating drops of blood. He literally had the whole world on his shoulders. In Isaiah 53, it talks about it like this. It says, he took up our pain. He bore our suffering, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This season of his life, he was preparing to take on the sin of the world upon his shoulders. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I sometimes make mistakes. Some people don't, I'm sure, when I meet them. I, I don't think they think they ever make mistakes, but all of us make mistakes from time to time. There are times when we let each other down. There are times when we fall short of our own standard, let alone God's. There are times when we rebel against God when we shouldn't. And in those times, uh, the instant regret of those actions can feel very heavy. And a lot of time we can carry around these feelings of heaviness. And depending on what mistakes people have made in life, it can sometimes be something that goes on for years. It can actually become crippling in people's lives, a sense of regret, a sense of shame and guilt. It's a lot that we sometimes take on. And if you've been in a situation like that before, you can know how heavy and painful those circumstances can feel in our everyday lives. Now, I want you to imagine that Jesus in this moment, in this season, was preparing to carry that moment for you. And not just that moment for you, but every moment like that in your life, every time you've sinned, every time you've rebelled against God, every time you've made those mistakes, Jesus was preparing to carry that on your behalf on the cross. And not just your moments, but the moments of everyone in this room, the moments of everyone you know, the moments of everyone throughout all of humanity, Jesus on the cross bore our sin, and he died in our place. You can imagine now why he was in so much anguish that he was sweating drops of blood. This is what he had come for. And in Mark chapter 15, we come to the point of this so-called trial, and he was drawing close to finishing his mission on our behalf. Just recently I read a book, and one of the chapters in the book was written by a guy called John Ortberg. And in this chapter, he talked about this idea of shadow missions, these missions we have in life. Now, nearly every morning I walk the dog and um, I've got a little miniature bull terrier called Darcy and I take Darcy out for a walk every morning. And uh, in summer, it's a beautiful thing. On days like today, it's not so much fun. But you go out in summer and when I'm walking along, you get these beautiful shadows on the ground. Um, now, the bull terriers have got very sort of distinctive faces and very pointy ears and a pointy tail, so their shadow, it looks exactly like them. You can see all the definition in the shadow, and it's the same with mine. When I stand there and I look at the shadow, you can see my, my muscles bulging, my biceps uh, in, in that shadow. What are you laughing about? And, and not only that, you can see my love handles as well, so that's not so flattering. But in the shadow, uh, you can sort of see a reflection of yourself. But the thing about the shadow is this, that the shadow looks like us, but it's not the real deal. It's only a shadow. Now, this kind of outlines Ortberg's view that each of us have a mission to live out in our lives to make disciples and to share the good news 
and to be the light of the world and to live for God and for others. But so often in our lives, we settle for something so much less. Ortberg puts it like this. He says, you and I were created to have a mission in life. We are made to make a difference. But if we do not pursue the mission for which God designed and gifted us, we will find a substitute. We cannot live in the absence of purpose without an authentic mission. We will be tempted to drift on autopilot, to let our lives center around something that is unworthy, something selfish, something dark, a shadow mission. The idea is this, that in Christ, we all have a God-given mission in our lives, and yet the devil wants to do whatever he can to distract us from what God wants us to do with our lives. Now, as you look through the Bible, you'll see all sorts of characters in the Bible. Some overcame a shadow mission in their life and others succumbed to it. And so when you look at people like Joseph, you can see that he was a guy that was used in a mighty way by God, but he stood firm against a shadow mission that tempted him all the way through his life. And it was particularly to get revenge on his brothers who had treated him so poorly and had sold him into slavery. But instead of embracing that shadow mission, he stood firm in the mission of God and he lived out what God had for him, understanding that what his brothers had intended for harm, God was going to use for good. Daniel's another character in the Bible, often tempted to uh, go towards power and position and prestige and these temptations came over and over again in his life. And yet he stood as a person who didn't give in to the lure of power, but he stood on his convictions in every area of his life. But there are other characters throughout scripture that succumbed to the shadow mission that was presented before them. The the most pressing example I imagine would be Adam and Eve in the garden. So clearly the devil tempted them. They were created to have a mission. Their mission was to reflect the image of God in all of creation, to care for his creation, to live for his glory. And yet this shadow mission was put in front of them by the devil and the shadow mission was this, that they would be independent of God, that they would be their own God. And so they gave in to that temptation and you and I today are living in the consequences of that decision to give in to the devil's deception to live out their shadow mission rather than to embrace the mission that God had given them. Judas is another character in this Easter story. We see a shadow mission. Uh, I want you to think about Judas for a moment. He was one of the 12 people throughout human history who Jesus chose while he was on earth to be one of the 12 closest disciples and friends that he had. That's an incredible mission. What a privilege to be one of those 12 men. And yet Judas had a shadow mission. His mission was selfish gain. He wanted more money and more stuff for himself to the point that he would betray Jesus and walk away from the mission Christ had given him for a few pathetic little coins. The end result, of course, is Judas hanging on a tree and Jesus hanging on one as well. Shadow missions can have devastating consequences in our life. And sometimes they're very obvious things. You know, a a married person has an affair or a a person who wants more money goes and robs a bank. They're pretty obvious and pretty destructive shadow missions that the devil puts in front of us. But what I've discovered in life is so often the shadow missions in our lives are a lot more subtle than that. They're the little things that strive for our attention. They are subtle things. They're often actually very good things. And yet they become destructive things because we make them ultimate things. Let me say that again, shadow missions are often very subtle in our life and they can often be good things that become destructive things because we make them ultimate things. And so Judas is a good example of that and it can be like that in our lives with money. We might be wanting to follow God's mission in our life, 
but we realize that we need money to, to you know, feed the family and to have a roof over our head. And so it starts with a bit of an anxiety about not having enough. And all of a sudden, you're, God's mission, you're a little you know, two degrees off, off course, but then you, you get that money and, and you become a workaholic because you need more and then you're neglecting your family and then you, you know, get a promotion and then there's more time at work and then the, you need more money and then you get more money and then it's not enough and you need a boat and then you need a house and it goes on and on and on and you never get what you think that you need and this shadow mission which started just two degrees off course has now gone over here and the mission of God on your life is here and you've walked away because something else has taken his place. You can insert into that equation hobbies. You can insert into that equation family. You can insert into that equation anything that you know in your life uh, tempts you to become um, more dependent on that than God. You can insert super coach into that. If super coaching, you know, takes all of your time and your energy and your thoughts, there are all these things that the devil will tempt us with and they become the ultimate things in our life. The most interesting thing in Ortberg's chapter was when he talked about Jesus' shadow mission. And I found this really fascinating. Jesus, as we know, was the sinless, perfect son of God. But in his humanity, he was subjected to the same weakness and the same temptations that we are. That's why the book of Hebrews says that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who can empathize with us in our weakness because he faced the same temptations and weakness that we did. But despite those things, he overcame them and completed his mission. Jesus had a mission and his mission was to die. This is what we remember at Easter in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, in his own words. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we read through the Gospels, we see throughout Christ's life, the devil never stopped tempting him to abandon that mission and instead to embrace a shadow mission, not to suffer or die, but rather to live. Now you can see that wanting to live is a good thing. I want to keep living in this life. I, I don't fear death itself, but I do fear not being here for my wife and children as they grow up. And so I want to live. And that's a, that's a good desire to have. And, and I hope, God willing, that I will live and that I will be there for those special moments in life to guide and lead my family. And I hope and pray that's what my future holds. And so wanting to live is not a bad thing. If Jesus wanted to live, that's not a bad thing to desire. But for Jesus... His mission was ultimately to die for us. Ortberg says that for Jesus, a shadow mission was to be a leader without suffering, the Messiah without the cross. As we read through the Gospels, we see that the devil is persistently trying to get Jesus to abandon his mission and to embrace a shadow mission that may seem so attractive, but ultimately and eternally it was not what he was called to. And so we see this after Jesus' baptism, for example. Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. It's an incredible moment in his life. Holy Spirit comes upon him. Uh, God the Father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is an initiation for his public ministry life. And it says a moment after that happened, the first thing that happens is that he was led by the Spirit into the desert where he was tempted by the devil. And so the devil has him out there in the wilderness and he starts to tempt him. And in simplest terms, he shows him that he could have everything this world has to offer if he would just abandon his mission and substitute it for the things of this world. He can have provision, he can have power, he can have prosperity if he just submits to the devil's plans for his life rather than to his father's. 
In Matthew 16, Jesus is with his disciples and he's trying to teach them about this mission he has to die. And he tells them that, that he's going to have to suffer many things and that he must die. And immediately after that, Peter, one of his three closest disciples, immediately pulls him aside and he starts to rebuke him. And he says, never, Lord. That's not going to happen. You're the Messiah. You're not going to die. No way. That's not going to happen to you. And what's Jesus' response? He doesn't rebuke Peter. What does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan is constantly trying to tempt him to throw the bait out, to, to lure him away from the mission he came for, to live instead of to die. We see it again in the Garden of Gethsemane that we stressed last week. He's so uh, overwhelmed that he's sweating drops of blood. And he says to his father, if there's any other way that you can take this cup from me, if there's any other way we can do this without dying, let's do that. But he says those powerful words, but not my will be done, but yours. Even just after that, Jesus is arrested in that very same garden. As the soldiers are trying to lead him away to his death to fulfill his mission, Peter once again takes matters into his own hands and he pulls out a sword and he lops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells him to put his sword away. And he reminds him, Peter, don't you know that if I wanted to get out of this, if I wanted to escape this, don't you know I could call on 12 legions of angels at any time and they could come and rescue me? But he said, this has to happen because it's his mission and because the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then we get to the cross. Even on the cross, he's so close to completing his mission. He's literally hanging there in the process of death. And even then, we see the devil using people to tempt him to get out of it. Even there, hanging on the cross, people walk by and they taunt him saying, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. The chief priests mocked him, saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of the Jews, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Can you see what's happening here? What we know about the devil is that he's persistent. The devil tries many times to distract Jesus from his mission on the cross, but we see his mission complete, and he stretches out his hands, and he says, it is finished. It's finished. On the cross, Jesus paid the punishment we deserve. He paid the price for our sin. He opened up the possibility for us to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father and for the joy set before Him, what we experience in Christ today. He endured the cross and scorned its shame for us. He completed His mission. But what we see from today's passage is that even though Jesus was obediently living out the greatest mission in human history, given to him by the Father himself, the mission he completed was a very painful one, full of incredible suffering. Because Jesus found himself in a Christ-rejecting world. Today it's important to, as Peter said before, try and immerse ourselves in the story as we remember what Christ went through on our behalf. Jesus was a great teacher and a man who many had admired and followed from early in his ministry. However, we see all the way back in Mark chapter 2, from very early in his ministry life, he had been mistreated, hunted, and hated by the religious leaders. And you can kind of sense in this passage, as we get to chapter 15, that they finally thought, after three years of harassing and pursuing Christ, that they finally had him. We've got him exactly where we want. We're going to win this battle. 
three years of constant threats and plotting and scheming and they could now smell blood and they were going in for the kill. The crowds were on their side, the legal system was on their side and they were desperate to seal the deal and have Jesus crucified as soon as they possibly could. In verse 1 of chapter 15 it says, very early in the morning. In other words, the earliest possible opportunity, as soon as it was lawful to transact business. This is not the normal, but as early as possible in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law, all the religious leaders, the very ones who should be representing God. And they've gathered together and they get together with the whole Sanhedrin. That's the Supreme Court of Israel, ancient Israel. And they get together and it says they made their plans. This is tragic injustice. Jesus was meant to go before these people on trial. They were meant to hear both sides of the story and then ensure that justice was carried out, but they had already made their plans. This was highly illegal. It was completely rigged and it was unbelievably unjust. It was a mock trial. And so they bound Jesus, they led him away and they handed him over to Pilate. This is Jesus' mission. We could easily look at the story, couldn't we, and say, well, it doesn't seem like it's going very well. I mean, it looks like the the enemies of Christ are winning the battle. The truth is that Jesus' greatest defeat was paving the way for his greatest victory. It's what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. These very people who were trying to thwart the mission of God, very, very, very clearly trying to thwart Jesus' mission, In an ironic twist, they were actually helping to facilitate his mission coming to pass. This is God's sovereignty at work in this situation. And so they take him before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor representing the Roman emperor named Tiberius. Secular history records Pilate as a cruel and corrupt man. But in each of the Gospels, even he, even this corrupt man, seems to be sympathetic to the injustice that Jesus is suffering. And it appears that he even employs tactics to try and get him released. The first thing he does is that he brings Jesus and another prisoner before them. This is one of the customs they had in those days. That they could bring one of these two before the crowds and the crowd had a choice to release one of them. And I imagine when Pilate presented them with this choice, he expected that they would choose to release Jesus. Because the other man was a guy called Barabbas, a violent criminal. He was sentenced to die because he was an agitator against Rome. He'd been part of a violent uprising. And in this violent altercation, he had committed murder. He was a man with radical views. He's dangerous and he hates the Romans. And so Pilate presents the option to release Jesus, an innocent man, or to release Barabbas, a violent criminal. The crowd have the choice. As I said before, I'm sure Pilate may have assumed that they would release Jesus. And he says to them, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd, got them into a frenzy, a riot, so that they yelled out to release Barabbas and to crucify Jesus. Pilate asked them again, why? Why would you do this? What crime has he committed? But they shouted even louder, crucify him. You can imagine being there. Interestingly, the word Barabbas means son of a father. And it seems that this crowd were determined to release this violent son of a father in order to kill the son of the father, an innocent man, Jesus Christ. They want to release a man who brings death to kill a man who brings life. 
In Jesus' mission, we see very plainly that he is facing incredible opposition. Some commentators note that it's a little bit strange that just a week earlier, the crowd was shouting out for Jesus. Like shouting out things as he rode into Jerusalem, like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. But now the crowd shouting, crucify him. Many commentators say it's a little bit peculiar that they would turn so quickly. But I think if you dig a little bit deeper, there's a good chance that this crowd was an entirely different crowd of people. The Jewish leaders knew that Jesus was a popular leader in the general community, that he had many people who believed he wasn't just a great teacher, but he was also the promised Messiah that they'd been waiting for. And so you start to see, going back to verse 1, why the leaders had got up so early in the morning to make their plans. This arrest and trial was an undercover secret plan because they feared that Jesus' popularity could actually lead to an uprising for him, to see him released. And so they do it in secret before the word gets out. And it's likely that the crowd that were present there that day were actually there more interested in getting Barabbas released than Jesus because he was a guy that actually rose up against the Roman Empire. People who weren't Romans, they hated the Roman Empire. In an ironic twist, this is what people wanted for their Messiah. They wanted Jesus to be this powerful leader that would rise up and overthrow the power of Rome and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And Barabbas is a man who's actually stuck it to the man. And so the crowd there were likely to be there because they wanted Barabbas released. And so sensing a pro-Barabbas crowd, the religious leaders couldn't believe their luck. And the crowd were likely thrilled too because one of their own could be released. In verse 10, Pilate accused the chief priests of self-interest. But now in verse 15, Pilate's character is revealed for all of us to see. And we see that his character is also one of self-interest. Verse 15, it says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate releases Barabbas to them and he hands Jesus over to be flogged and crucified. When you look at the story, you see that this story is so full of people who are living for self-interest. The disciples abandoned Jesus because of self-interest. Judas betrayed Jesus because of self-interest. Peter denied Jesus out of self-interest. The religious leaders handed Jesus over to be killed because of self-interest. Pilate appeases the crowd because of self-interest. And when we look at the story, there's one character that stands out as different to that. The one person who's being abused, insulted and killed. If there's anyone in this story who should have been desperately scrambling out of self-interest, it's Jesus. But instead of valuing self-interest, he models incredible self-sacrifice. What a great example for us. In the last four verses of this passage, we see the most disgusting treatment of an innocent man that you could ever imagine. In late July 1975, Bob Dylan wrote a protest song called Hurricane. You probably know it. The song is about an up-and-coming boxer called Reuben Hurricane Carter, an African man living in a racist community. The song told the story of Reuben Carter being framed for a murder he didn't commit and then being thrown in prison as a result. In Dylan's lyrics, he described the trial as a pig circus where he never had a chance. He talks about the fact that Reuben Carter was obviously framed. And he said, I can't help but be ashamed to live in a land where justice is a game. He finishes the song with these words. He says, Now all the criminals in their coats and their ties are free to drink martinis and watch the sun rise while Reuben sits like Buddha in a ten-foot cell 
an innocent man in a living hell. It's a powerful song. And we can listen to the lyrics and we can read the story and we can be saddened by the incredible injustice that a man like that went through. But the truth of the matter is this. If that song was written about Jesus, do you know who the criminals and the suits and the ties would be? They'd be us. be you and me. Jesus died in our place. We were the ones who'd done the things wrong. We were the ones that deserved to be punished. And yet we can live our lives free because Jesus died for us. Guilty people set free by an innocent man. Reuben Carter was done a great injustice, but what happened to him wouldn't even scratch the surface of what happened to Christ. And we read about it in this passage. Jesus wasn't just an innocent man. He was a perfect man. God in human form. And so as we read the last four verses, we read what happened to him. The soldiers led him to the praetorium and they surrounded him. They put a purple robe on him. They shoved a crown of thorns into his skull. They cried out, Hail, King of the Jews! And they mocked him and bowed down to him. And they struck him in the head over and over again with their fists and with a wooden staff to the point that he was left, Isaiah describes him as um, unrecognisable. He was so badly beaten that you couldn't even recognise him. They spat in his face. When we consider this, it should break our hearts. That he endured this on our behalf. This great mission was marked by great suffering. And so what's the application for us today? From a passage like this, from the Easter story in its entirety, well, the first application is this, that Jesus' one-way mission provided one way for us to come back into relationship with God the Father. Jesus' death and resurrection conquered the power of sin because he took our sin upon himself and he paid the punishment for us. But he also conquered death by rising from the dead and showing that even death had no power over him. As a result, we live in the hope now of the the resurrection where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Easter time is a time to remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and to renew our commitment to him and perhaps a time for some people to give their life to him for the very first time. And if that's you here today, if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I encourage you to read this story in the Bible and to ponder what Christ has done on our behalf and maybe even have the bravery to pray a prayer and ask God to reveal himself to you this Easter time. But the second application is a powerful one as well, and it's mainly for people that have already put their faith in Christ. And the second application is this, that Jesus, in this story, perfectly models mission for us. We can embrace this mission that God has given us to take all the gifts that we have, all of the passion, all of the abilities, all of our finance, all of our attitude, all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. We can take all of that And we can ask God, how can I use this? How can I wring my life out for your glory? To be someone who lives submitted to your will. To share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus and to be the light of the world. How can I do this in my life? Lord, help me with the power of your Holy Spirit. Or we can embrace a shadow mission that promises so much but delivers so little. Christ's shadow mission was to live when his mission was to die. And our shadow mission will be very much the same. I don't think any of us will die on a Roman cross, but the call of God on every Christian's life is to lay their life down and to die to themselves daily. 
Jesus says in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me daily. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses it for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? The Apostle Paul says, I die to myself daily. I lay down my desires, my needs, my wants, my comfort, my selfishness, and I lay it down at the cross. And so if Jesus models perfect mission for us, what we know about is that it won't be easy. Jesus lived in a Christ-rejecting world, and you and I too find ourselves largely in a Christ-rejecting world. As the authorities conspired against Christ, there will be times when they conspire against us in different ways as well. We too can be expectant of ridicule and persecution, to be mocked and criticised as we live out this mission. But Jesus invites us into the struggle. He invites us into the battle. He invites us into the mission. He says, come, follow me, and I will be with you always. Just as Jesus faced temptation to abandon his mission and embrace an inferior mission, we too will face the same temptations. If the devil constantly tempted Jesus, and there's no doubt he'll constantly tempt us. He knows our weakness, and he'll push on those buttons over and over and over again to distract us. The book of James says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And so we look to Jesus today, and this Easter time, as the man, the God-man, who perfectly models mission for us. And so I want to leave you with a question. And the question is this Easter time, are you living out the mission of God in your life? Are you submitting all that you have and all that you are to this incredible mission to share the gospel? Are you laying your life down before Christ this Easter and every day? I want to encourage you today and this week to invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what the mission of God is on your life. And as you embrace that by using your gifts and abilities and by sharing the gospel, making disciples and living for his glory, I believe that each of us can discover that one-way mission that Christ has placed in our lives as well. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord, Easter time is an incredible time of the year to stop, reflect and remember all that you have done for us. Lord, we are in awe of the sacrifice you made on our behalf and we realise that it should have been us that we're reading about. But Lord, you have created a way out by dying in our place, by taking our sin and by opening up the opportunity to come back into relationship with the God that created us. Lord, at Easter time, we remember with sombre hearts and sad hearts what you went through and the suffering you endured for us. But ultimately, Easter time is a time of great celebration as well. As we remember that death could not hold you down, but that you rose from the dead, conquering death once and for all, so that in you, we too can have the hope of eternal life. What an awesome thing that is. Lord, I pray that as we consider all of this this Easter time, as we look at your life and the way you modelled this mission for us, Lord, I pray that we also would be willing to lay our lives down, keeping an eternal perspective that we would look up and that we would look forward 
as we embrace the mission on our lives. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would use us individually and as a church to have an incredible impact in this community and beyond. Lord, I pray that we'd be thinking right now about people that we can share this message with this Easter time, perhaps invite to our Easter services, and that we can pray and believe in faith that this Easter time, some of those people would too come to know you in a life-changing way. We pray this today in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.